British missionary named C.T. Studd was discouraged by the lack of missional or by the amount of missional apathy he saw as he looked at the church of his day. And he said, I wish I could take every Christian and dangle them over the pit of hell for 30 seconds. His mindset was that this would be life changing and life altering for them if they could see the horrors of hell, the reality of hell, that no one would be missionally apathetic anymore. They would have an evangelistic fervor. And I agree. Such an experience would certainly motivate us all in the mission of making disciples of all nations if we knew for sure how awful and how terrible uh, hell was. However, something I believe to also be just as life-changing and just as mission-motivating would be getting a glimpse of the greatness and the glory of God. And imagine seeing God in all of His glory, sitting upon His throne. Imagine seeing the angels worshiping Him with their wings furling and unfurling. They're flying and them crying out that He is holy, holy, holy. How would a vision of God like that change our perception of ourselves? I mean, wouldn't seeing God in all of His glory, wouldn't that humble us to an extent where we would think less about how great we are and be far more aware of how great He is? Wouldn't we think less about how pure we are and how much more aware we would be of how much we need His grace and His mercy in our lives? And wouldn't, wouldn't we likely just give ourselves to wholly do whatever He would have us to do, no matter what that would be, knowing anything we do, any risk we take, any sacrifice we make, would be worth it when it was done in service to the great and the awesome God we beheld. Well, Revelation, as it's moved beyond the seven churches, it's now we're going to move into a part where John is given a vision like this. A picture of the greatness and the glory of of God. So it's a picture really I think is wonderful. I, I'm not going to do it justice in my preaching and my describing of it because it's, I think, beyond, it's, well, I know it's beyond my abilities to express. But if we truly understand what John is revealing, if we truly recognize what we're seeing, then it, it can't help but change who we are and how we live in our lives. So, Open your Bible to Revelation 4 if you have not done so already. Uh, it's page 951 if you've got a pew Bible. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Revelation 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. The first voice which I heard was as it were a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat upon the throne. And he that sat was to look at like jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow around the throne, and the sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeding lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal, and in the midst of the throne round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind 
And the first beast was like a lion, the second beast like a calf, the third beast had the face of a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the fourth beast had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat upon the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat upon the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever, cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. The title of the message this morning is A Glimpse of Glory. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Father, this world is noisy. This world is constantly trying to get our attention. It's trying to get our attention through our ears. It's trying to get our attention through our eyes and and divert our ears from hearing what your spirit would say. Divert our eyes from seeing you. And yet in your word, you've told us to set Our eyes on things above. You've told us often. Father to to think about things that are right and true and good and pure. You've told us to live a certain way because we are dead to this world and our life is hid with Christ in you. Father we need you today to take this passage and begin to break away. The world's stronghold upon our lives. To break away the world's pull to our vision. To looking at things here and now and not at things to come. To break away the world's noise that that causes us to listen to to so much of what's screaming and hollering and shouted at us today. Rather than hearing the still small voice of our God. We need you to break away from our hearts the the affections we feel toward the things of this earth. The things which hold us down. The things which make us self-centered and self-focused. We need you, Father, to give us this, this glimpse of glory. God, I'm not able to explain this in a way that's worthy of what we see here. But your Spirit can come and He can... Make your word living and active. Bring it to life in our minds and in our hearts. Do that today, Father. Let this be something that would be life changing for us as we have a better understanding of how great and how marvelous, how glorious, how beautiful you truly are. Help us, Father, to to just let what What we see here about who you are and what you're like. Let that rest in our minds, rest in our thoughts and motivate our lives. Fill me this morning with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. And let me say what you want said in the way you want it said. I don't want to be a hindrance in any way. Have your way in all of our hearts and in all of our lives. Father, you know what needs to be done if. If we're lost, save us. If we've slidden back in our relationship with you, restore us. If we're 
headed down the path of being lukewarm. Revive us. If we're focused on the past and ignoring the present, help us to look to you. And if we're just sort of drifting, give us a path to go on and let us move out with purpose to do your will in all things. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Revelation, one thing to remember is Revelation is one book. So part of what this means is the people in the seven churches that received these letters, they didn't just receive the letter for their church. They received all of the letters. They received not only all seven letters, but all parts of this book comes to them. So here are, are these people that we've just looked at. We spent the last seven weeks looking at them. Some of them are are suffering terrible persecution. Some of them are imprisoned. Some of them have faced death or had people in their church who have died. Some of them are being attacked by Satan. Some of them are being deceived by Satan. Some of them have compromised with the world or allowed false doctrine in the midst of their church. And Jesus has called upon them. To be faithful unto death. To endure all things for His sake. To repent of their lukewarmness. To turn from their false doctrine, their their idolatry, and from their immorality. And these would not be easy tasks to accomplish. These These are not easy tasks to accomplish in the best of days. It is difficult to do what Jesus has called us to do. If we have compromised and we have allowed this false doctrine in our minds, it's difficult to repent of it and to turn away from it. If we have allowed ourselves to to become lukewarm, it is easy to be lukewarm. It is difficult to turn away from that. If we have embraced a level of immorality that the culture says is okay, it is easy to go with the flow of culture, difficult to repent and to get out of it, to live the way Jesus would have us to live. And I, while I've never suffered for my faith in Jesus, I have to believe it's difficult to be faithful unto death. To hear, not I'm going to make it better. Not go ahead and and go underground for a while. Be ye faithful unto death. That seems like it would be a very, very hard thing to accomplish. And part of what they needed in order to accomplish this was a reminder of the greatness and the majesty and the glory of the God commanding them to do these things. So they would overcome the hard and do the things that needed to be done. We too need this reminder. Now we don't yet suffer the persecution they were enduring. But we do know what it is to suffer. Our suffering is different from theirs for various reasons. But it's no less real. We face temptations to sin. We face temptations to compromise. We are assaulted with false doctrine and told we must embrace it. We face the very same things they did. Again, maybe in slightly different ways, but it's the same basic concept. 
And for us to pursue Jesus with a single-minded obedience, not concerned with the culture, not concerned with the difficulty, not concerned with the cost to us personally, but to just pursue Jesus, it's going to be difficult. I think it's been difficult. It's going to get more difficult as the culture gets less and less friendly toward Christianity. And and just as an example, because sometimes people can say, oh, the preachers are always saying the culture is less friendly towards Christianity. They've always been saying that. But if you've kind of watched the news, you know their March Madness, which I don't keep up with football. That's how little I keep up with sports, uh, with basketball. But ORU made it into the Sweet 16. Is that what they made it to? And ORU, of course, Oral Roberts University, an evangelical Christian school. And they, they faced calls for them to be ejected from the NCAA. Why? Well, because they're Christian and they believe Christian doctrine. They believe Christian things about morality. They believe the Bible about how you ought to live. And what you ought to be. And by next year, there's a better than average chance they will face even more calls than that. That's how hostile the current culture is getting toward Christianity. They were not worthy of being in the, in the, in the competition, in the brackets and in the games, simply because they hold to what they have always held to. They didn't just add this stuff last week. Oral Roberts University was founded. They believe the same things they have always believed since Oral Roberts founded the university. Why people were surprised they believe Christian doctrine is beyond me, but they do. And so there was a call to put them out of the NCAA. And the calls will increase. And it will be likely that within a few years they will be put out for what they believe. If they don't compromise. And that's the same world we live in. That's the same things we're going to face. Soon people will ask us if we believe this or if we believe that. And believing that could cost us jobs, could cost us relationships, could cost us any number of things. And the temptation for us will be to compromise, to hide, to to say we don't when we do, but just hide it in our hearts. And to, to come up with all of these justifications which are compromised and which are wrong. Because Jesus' words to us are still the same as they were to Smyrna. Be faithful unto death. And it's going to be hard. And in order to keep going when it's hard, we need to be reminded of the greatness, the majesty, and the power of the God who calls us, who saves us. And who has commanded us to live and act in certain ways. Now, technically I have four points to this message. Actually though, I have one point and then three points of application. The first point is the main point. If we don't get the first point, we won't do the other three. The other three are are meaningless and I think cannot be done without recognizing the first point. Right, so the main idea, if we don't get anything else, here's what we have to do from Revelation 4. Recognize the greatness of our God. This is the key truth. This is what 
John and God are trying to communicate to us. This vision of God in the throne room. John is taken up in the, in the spirit. He is allowed to see the throne room of heaven. Now, in ancient times, when kings called people into their courts, there were two primary things they wanted them to see. They wanted them to see their splendor, their majesty, or their glory. And they wanted them to see their power. Right. So if, if someone was a visitor to the king's court, the king had everybody decked out in their, their Sunday best. He had all the best stuff out so that when they came in, they would see the splendor of the king and they would be amazed. Wow, this is amazing. And then they wanted them to see the power of the king. So they would say, we'll make a treaty with this guy. We are we are not going to assault him. I think we'll just give him a pass. We're not going to try to take his kingdom or attack him. In a way, what God wants us, wants John and the seven churches and us to see is the same thing. He is revealing to us his glory. He is revealing to us his power. And as John sets out to describe the glory and the power of God, he he gives us, he reveals God's greatness in, in several ways, right? So God is great in glory. Verse two, he's on his throne. He the look upon him, he's like Jasper with a sardine stone. There was a rainbow round about his throne in sight like unto an emerald. Um, it, and again, I, I don't have ways to describe what this would look like. I don't know how you are. I'm not a like I read books and even fantasy books and things like that. But I don't <laughs> I read the words. I don't picture them in my head. I'm, I'm not good at that. I've never been a very I guess I'm not imaginative. Um I always joke that I'm kind of like a, a water puddle, a mud puddle. When you get below the surface, you kind of find out that's all there is. Right. I, I don't have this great imagination to picture this. So I read this and then I think, wow, that's that must be awesome. But I have no idea. I mean, I, I can't for the life of me. I can't read that and and imagine what it must look like. But thankfully, there are. Oh, and it says in verse six. For the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal in the midst of the throne, round about the throne, four beasts with eyes before and behind. And so while I can't think of it, there are people who are creative and imaginative types. So there is an artist who has illustrated the book of Revelation. And this is the artist's rendition of what he thinks Revelation 4 looks like. Now, whether that's exactly right or not, I don't know. But it does give... A picture of what it may be like. And I think it's pretty cool to kind of look at. Can you imagine seeing that? Can you imagine the glory and the majesty of the God who sits upon this throne? This is the great and the awesome God we pray to. This is the great and the awesome God who has... Inspired people to write scripture telling us how to live and what to do. This is the great and the awesome God who calls on us to be faithful unto death. This is the great and the awesome God who sent his son to die for our sins. So we could be 
redeemed. This is the great and awesome God who calls upon us to press on. Strive against sin. Resist compromise. Resist the world. This great God, this glorious God, is worthy of our worship. This great God is worthy of our devotion. This great God is worthy of our striving. And this great God is worthy of our sacrifice, whatever it may be. God God is not only great in glory, God is great in grace. Look at verse 4. And around about the throne, there were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats... I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment. And they had on their heads crowns of gold. Now, I'm not a big into symbolism. I think sometimes that stuff can be carried away. But in Revelation, we have to deal with it because there is much symbolism in the book of Revelation. And in this verse, I think there is significant symbolism. I think the 24 elders... Symbolize or represent the church, not not just our church, but the church of all ages, right? All believers of all time. And there's two reasons I believe this. The first is in the days just before Jesus's arrival to earth, there were far more priests than could work in the temple at a given time. There was just no way every priest could do all the things that needed to be done. And so. They came up with 24 orders of priests. And when it was time for this order of priests to serve, what they would do is they would pick one person to go and do the service. And he, in doing so, he represented the whole order. Right? So think Zacharias in Luke 1. That's what it tells us about Zacharias. He was representing his order in Luke 1 when he saw the angel. So there is a precedent in the Bible for one person being representative of a larger group. Now, a second reason I believe this refers to the church is the number 24 gives us a a good picture of Old and New Testament believers, right? There were how many tribes in the Old Testament? There were 12. And there were how many apostles in the New Testament? Well, there were 12. So you have 12 tribes, 12 apostles, and it gives you 24 People, And so it seems that what we have here are what would in essence be the 12 patriarchs and the 12 apostles sort of representing the entire church, Old and New Testament church, those who redeemed by faith through grace in Christ. Now, notice how these elders are dressed. First, it says that they are wearing white robes. Now, we talked about, if you were here last week, the white robes symbolize the righteousness Jesus gives to his disciples. White robes representing righteousness is found really all throughout the book of Revelation. We saw it in Revelation 3 and 4. We saw it in Revelation 3.18. We'll see it again in Revelation 7.13 and 14. And so what we need to understand is All of us, as disciples of Jesus, we can be righteous through Christ. And one day, all of us will stand before God. 
before Jesus, dressed in the righteousness of Jesus because of God's grace and God's mercy. But we'll see in a minute, it's not because of us. It's because of who he is and what he has done. Right? Sorry, I lost my place. And it's not just the 24, right? This is all believers. Look at Revelation 5 and 9. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book, to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. But God is great in grace. Because in heaven there will be a vast multitude of people who surround the throne and worship God and give Him the glory He deserves. And they're there not because of what they have done, but they're there because they are dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This righteousness has been given to them through faith in Jesus. And I think, again, we can... One of the reasons we need to understand the greatness of God is because without understanding the greatness of God, we really think we're pretty awesome most of the time. We, we apart from seeing God as He is, we really don't understand our need for the righteousness of Christ. We kind of think, well, no, I'm not perfect, but we can name four or five people without trying that we're better than. I mean, we are significantly better than them. So why do I need just the righteousness of Christ? I am pretty good. Look at what I've accomplished. Look at what I've done. But when we, when we see this God, we don't go look at what I've done. Look at how wonderful I am. We're aware we need His righteousness. We need His grace. And a God that will forgive us of our rebellion against Him, our sin, is worthy of our worship. I mean, think about... I don't have time for that, never mind. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our devotion. He's worthy... Of our striving. And he is worthy of whatever sacrifice we might have to make. In our service and our devotion to him. God is great in glory. God is great in grace. God is great in power. Look at verse 5. And out of the throne proceed lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. Which are the seven spirits of God. Have you ever been in a. Big thunderstorm. I had a friend that served with the army. He came from California to Fort Campbell and he drove through Oklahoma along the way and he got caught in one of one of our famous lightning and thundering storms. He had never seen that sort of streak lightning and the thunder sounding like it was right over the top of his car before. He said he was terrified by it. But we've all seen those. We've been in those kind of storms where it's just, I mean, you're, you're awed by the power of those things. I think that's the picture here. These things are proceeding out of the throne. And the idea of they're proceeding out of the throne isn't just that it's a random lightning strike or a random thunder. It is, it is controlled by the one on the throne. 
So imagine the most intense lightning and thunderstorm you've ever seen. And it's emanating from the throne and there's someone sitting on it and he's controlling it. How powerful is the one on the throne? How powerful is the one who controls those sorts of things? Not only is there lightning and, and thunders, there's these beasts. Right there. Again, here's the picture of them. My mind, again, I can't make something like that, but that's what they're described as. They're four beasts, full of eyes, before and behind. So I, if you could see the picture up close, you can see there's eyes just kind of all over them. Verse 8, or verse 7, it says, The first beast was like a lion, the second like a calf, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. So these are impressive creatures. All sorts of symbolism ideas about what they mean, but that's not really, I don't think, significant to what we're talking about today. So can you imagine, have you ever seen anything that looked remotely like that? If you were walking through the woods, something like that descended before you. What would be your response, do you imagine? I imagine there would be sheer terror in us at seeing something. One, so strange looking, but so awe-inspiring. So we would be terrified. And yet, what do these things do? They praise the one on the throne. They rest not day or night, saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. These beasts are are magnificent all on their own. They are majestic and awe-inspiring all on their own. And yet, they worship the one on the throne. Isaiah's parallel account to this sort of a vision says they cover their eyes. And they cover their feet as they fly. They cover their eyes because they know as magnificent and glorious as they are, they are not worthy to to look straight upon the one on the throne. How powerful is the person on the throne that creatures like that cease not worshiping him? That do not feel they are worthy to look at Him. How powerful is the one on the throne who controls the thunder, the lightning, and the top that we see in verse 5. The main takeaway is our God is awesome. The idea that He is holy is just further to His glory. But holiness, when attributed to God or to Jesus, it does mean morally pure. There, there's, that's what we often think of it. It means morally pure. So He is perfectly morally pure, but it's more than that. It, it also means He is other, right? He, he's not like us. He is something entirely different, right? That, that being... That, that is not someone who's like us, but a little more long living. That is not someone like me or like you, except a little more powerful. He is something altogether different. 
And that difference, that supernatural quality is a part of what makes him so great, so glorious and so worthy. He is the the God our, our minds cannot fully fathom. He is the God who can do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or imagine. I mean, think about just the that statement. What is the biggest thing we could think or imagine? And the idea is that's nothing to God. We we cannot exaggerate God's greatness. We cannot exhaust His power. Our finite minds cannot fully comprehend how, how worthy and glorious He truly is. Paul says He is the God who dwells in unapproachable light. This God, this great God is worthy. Worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our devotion. He is worthy of our striving and He is worthy of any sacrifice we might have to make in our service and our devotion to Him. Now that we understand God is glorious, God is great in glory and grace and power, how do we respond to this God? Well, from what we see in this passage, we first should worship God passionately. In Isaiah's parallel passage, the angels, the beings worshiping God, it says that their voices shake the throne or shake the pillars of the temple where they are. The worship they give is not puny. It's not going through the motions. I mean, think about it. They are saying, what, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Eleven words. They're singing an eleven word worship song and they cease not day and night. They were singing this song in Genesis one. And they were singing this song in Isaiah six and they were singing this song Two thousand years ago when John was given this vision and they're singing this song now. And when we get to heaven, we'll be singing this song. And they're not bored with it. And they're not mumbling it. And they're not balancing their checkbook. And they're not playing video games on their phone. And they're not talking to their neighbor. They are giving God, they're not griping. Can't we sing a new song once in a while? I don't like the way the music sounds. Why wow, these pews aren't very comfortable. It's too cold. It's too hot. They're passionately worshiping the great and the glorious God on the throne. And, and as they worship, the 24 elders, the church, falls down on their face and they confess he's worthy. The the passion of this worship should not be lost upon us. Does the way we worship God. Does it does it go along like this? Is it demonstrating the greatness and the glory 
of our God. You know, the sad fact is many times our worship is distracted. We we think about ourselves. I, I don't like this song. I don't like, I wish we would do this, or I like that better, or this would be. And it's really, here's what we're saying. Me. Me, I should be the focus of the worship. Not the great God. It's not about how glorious and magnificent and wonderful He is. It's what I like. I don't like this. How, how pathetic is that, really? That we've gathered to worship this God... And all we can think about is ourselves, what we like, what we prefer, what we want. God help us. God help us. Does our worship, does it demonstrate the greatness of our God? Someone who would visit our church for the first time should see the way we worship God and say, I want what they have. I mean, I I can sing better than many of them maybe. But the way they do it is, I don't have that. I want the God they have that inspires such devotion from them. We cannot recognize the greatness, glory, grace, and power of our God and it not move us to passionate, awe-inspired worship. Half-hearted, unfocused, self-focused worship is always a reflection of a poor view of God. Those who recognize the greatness of God cannot help but worship God passionately. Secondly, glorify God continuously. In Isaiah's parallel vision, when he sees God high and lifted up, he says, oh no, I am going to die because I am so sinful. When Isaiah sees the greatness and the glory and the majesty and the holiness of God, there's no talk about how good Isaiah is. There's no talk about how much better he is than his neighbors. There's just a recognition of his unworthiness to stand before a holy and majestic God. God then takes a coal off the fire, touches Isaiah's tongue and, and cleanses him. There was nothing Isaiah could have done for himself. God had to cleanse him before he was worthy to praise and glorify God. We are no less dependent on God than Isaiah was. We are no less dependent on God than the 24 elders are. Look look at what we're told. But of him, of God, are we in Christ Jesus, who has made unto us wisdom and righteousness And sanctification and redemption. That according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Everything about our salvation is is of God. But the idea of made unto us wisdom. Why did one day you and I 
Why did we sit there as unbelievers who didn't see the need for Jesus and cross over to being believers who saw our need for Jesus? It was because God gave us the wisdom to see it. God then made us righteous. God has continued to work to sanctify us. And one day, Jesus will come home, or or Jesus will come back, or He'll call us to come home, and we will go to be with Him, and in that day it will be because of what He has done. And through it all, we will say, the glory in the Lord. I mean, there is not one aspect of our salvation we can say, look at how great I am. I did this. This was me. It's all of God. Now, the thing I was thinking about with this is how easy it is to become the Pharisee in in Luke chapter 18. Now, maybe you don't. Maybe you don't. And if you tell me you don't, I'm not going to argue with you. But I find it easy. To become the Pharisee in Luke 18. I remember the night I was saved. I came in like the tax collector in the story. And in fact, my prayer, the only prayer I knew to be saved was, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I didn't know a sinner's prayer. Nobody led me in anything like that. I, I just cried out over and over again, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And having come in that way, if I'm not careful, I can find myself saying, Lord, I thank you. I'm not like other people. I thank you, I'm not like that person over there. I find it horrifically easy to recite my good deeds and my worth. And forget, Isaiah says when we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing more than filthy rags. When we recognize the greatness and the glory and the grace power of God, we can't help but recognize He is the only one who's worthy of any glory for anything that happens in our life. One of the most important aspects of this passage to me is what the 24 elders do. Remember, they're told they wear golden crowns on their head. But in verse 10, it says, when they fall down before the throne and worship Him that lives forever, they cast their crowns before the throne. Saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and power. For Thou hast created all things. And for Thy pleasure, they are created. You know, the New Testament describes rewards we get in heaven for faithfulness on earth. Many times, those rewards are described in in His crowns. The imperishable crown. the, The crown of righteousness. The crown of life. The crown of glory. But what we have to realize is those crowns aren't given to us to walk around in heaven with our crowns going. How big my crown is. Look at all these extra jewels. I've got more than you do. Look at my crown. It's not the point. We're not going to walk around heaven with our crowns so I can go look at this. And so you can go, wow, he was really awesome in life. I wish I'd been that awesome in life. You know why? Because we're not the point. We're not the point now. We're not going to be the point then. When we get to heaven, we're going to have these crowns we have earned in this life. And then we're going to cast them at the feet of Jesus. We're going to cast them before the throne of God and say, you are worthy. You receive the glory. You receive the honor. You receive the power. I was created by your pleasure, for your pleasure. I did this for you. 
He is the one worthy of all glory and all honor and all power. And when we recognize the greatness of our God, His great glory, His great grace and His great power, it humbles us. And it cures us of any sense of God's lucky to have me. God's lucky I'm on His team. And instead we are constantly awed that God would allow us to be on His team. We are unworthy. We are unrighteous. And we are, as Jesus said, but unprofitable servants who have done what was our duty to do at best. All the glory, all the honor, all the praise goes to the one on the throne. And when we recognize God's greatness, we will not glory in ourselves. Rather, we will glorify God continuously. And then finally, we will serve God relentlessly. Worship God passionately. Glorify God continuously. Serve God Relentlessly. Thou art worthy to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things. For thy pleasure they are created. Now, all things is all things. So, guess who's a part of all things? You are. I am. Why were we created? Why are we here? For God's pleasure. That's it. And His glory. We were created by God to glorify God. We were created by God to bring Him pleasure in our lives. This requires relentless service to God. It requires us to be aware of the fact, I was created for God's pleasure. I need to do what pleases God. I was created for God's glory. I need to do what glorifies God and and make that the priority and the focus of my life, of our lives. Now, Isaiah's parallel passage gives us a great picture of this. Turn to Isaiah 6. So that was the introduction. Now we're in the actual message for the day. I'm kidding. Not really. Maybe. Isaiah 6 and 1. We'll just kind of go through the first part that we always look at. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. And above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. And with twain he did fly. One cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of Him that cried, and the, and the house was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I'm undone. Because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one, then flew one of the seraphim unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken in the tongs off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and he said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, thy iniquity is taken away, thy sin is purged. And I heard a voice, the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for me, go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. Now verse 8, that's the verse we, I mean that's a great verse, right? I mean, don't you, you picture Isaiah being enthusiastic about this, don't you? I, I do anyway, right? He, God says, who shall we send? Who will go for us? And, and I, I don't see Isaiah in this going, 
Well, I'm the only one here. I guess I'll go. It's not. That's not the way I picture it. I picture Isaiah going, me, me, pick me, woo, me. Right? Now, he doesn't know the mission. All he knows is the God he has just seen wants someone to go and do something. And Isaiah says, I'll do it. I'll go. And this is where we can stop if we're not careful. But look at what happens. God says, go and tell this people. Here, indeed. But understand not. See, indeed. But perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat or dull. Make their ears heavy. Shut their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart. And convert and be healed. Essentially what God says is, go and preach. And ain't nobody going to respond in a positive way. Nobody's going to turn Back to the covenant path. No one's going to go come back. You're going to have a long, hard ministry that's going to be unappreciated by the people. They're going to ignore you. They're going to be blinded. They're going to be deaf. They're going to be dumb about it. And they're just going to keep going in their rebellion. And that's your mission, Isaiah. Go and preach to a people who will never respond. Never turn back. In our days, we would say, you're not going to have any converts. You're not going to reach anybody for Jesus. You're just going to preach and they're going to be deaf and dumb and keep going in the way they're going. So Isaiah says what well, I think we would ask. How long? Golly, that's that doesn't that's not nearly as exciting as it was a minute ago. How long will I do this mission? God says until the cities are wasted without inhabitant, the houses without man, the land be utterly desolate and the Lord have removed Men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. But yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return, and shall be eaten in a teal tree and an oak, and whose substance is in them. When they cast their leaves, so the holy seed shall be substance thereof. In essence, God's saying a really long time. Isaiah is going to serve until God sends judgment upon Israel. He's going to serve and preach and call people to repent and they're going to ignore until the cities are laid waste and the people are dead and those that survive have been taken captive. And everything there is utterly desolate and it's like God has forsaken the land. And Isaiah did it. Isaiah is one of the longest serving prophets in the Old Testament, about 44 years in all. Can you imagine? 44 years. Of an unpopular message. 44 years of being rejected, imprisoned, being tossed in pits. 44 years of people scheming against you. Ministry spanned through four kings, five kings. Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and Manasseh. Isaiah relentlessly served God in a hard position for a very, very long time. And from What we know in history, he died badly. The book of Isaiah doesn't tell us how Isaiah died, but history or tradition tells us that Manasseh had him sawed in half. So in Hebrews 11, when it talks about the faithful people of God who were sawed in half, most think that's reference to Isaiah. 44 years, faithfully preaching a message that was long, always rejected, never received, died badly. 
There's the ministry. There's, there's your job, Isaiah. Go and do it. But he did it. Because he knew the greatness of his God. He knew the great grace of his God that had taken away his sin. He knew the great power of his God that inspired the seraphim to praise. He knew the greatness of his God. And so he served until he was faithful unto death. When we recognize the greatness, the greatness of God's glory, the greatness of God's grace, the greatness of God's power. Neither will we put limits on how, when, or where we serve our God. Those who truly understand the power and the glory of God. They don't say things like, I'll, I'll serve as long as. I won't do. This is too hard. I quit. I could never. Those who truly recognize the greatness, glory, and grace, and power of God are so amazed God would allow them to do anything for Him. They will do anything He wants, anytime He wants it. And they will do it as long as God wants them to do it. And they do it because of what we've seen in Isaiah 6, what we see in Revelation 4. Also, they do it because, if you turn back to Revelation 4, they also understand God created them. They were created for His pleasure, for His glory, and for His honor. We weren't created to do what we want to do. We weren't created to do what the world says to do. We were created for God's pleasure, for God's glory, and for God's honor. And when we understand that, His will, His want, His desire becomes the number one priority in our lives. God's will, God's want for our lives, it's more important than our comfort. It's more important than our pleasure it's more important than our will. It's more important than our desire. Jesus would say it's even more important than our very lives. We can't live like that naturally. That's just not a natural way to live. On our own, we would not do that. There has to be something that happens in us before we will live in a way that we would be faithful unto death. We would willingly sacrifice relationships, jobs, comfort, all things to do something which, like Isaiah, will be unpopular, which may not be that fruitful, which will, may not receive any honor in this life. And what we have to have happen is a recognition of the greatness, the glory, the grace, and the power of God. A recognition of these things is what motivated Luther to defy the Catholic Church. It's what motivated Tyndale to die at the stake. It's what motivated Polycarp to stand and let them burn him alive. It's what's motivated martyrs throughout the centuries, what's motivated missionaries on the field. It's what's motivated those who go to hard-to-reach places and hard-to-reach peoples, knowing they may die when they get there. They don't go because it's fun or it's exciting or it's easy. They go because they recognize the glory, the grace, the power of their God. And they want to do anything He wants them to do. An unwillingness to serve God in some way, in any way. I mean, it, it is. It is. It reveals a poor view of God. 
Because when we recognize the greatness of God's glory, the greatness of God's grace, the greatness of God's power, we put zero limits on our service to Him. Uh, uh, let me close with this. My Bible reading yesterday was in, in Philippians 1. Philippians 1.21, Paul says, To live is Christ, to die is gain. We all know that verse. We've probably quoted it. We've put it out on Instagram or something. But think about really what Paul's saying there. If I live, I'm going to live for Christ. And if I die in the process, well, that's, that's the biggest win of all. And as I was thinking about it yesterday, here's what I realized. I don't live like that. I mean, I don't. I would love to say I did. The reality is, I don't live as though death is gain. If I lived as though death was gain, I mean, I would be, I would, I would do much more, much more bold in how I live day to day. When I feel the Lord saying, go talk to that person, I wouldn't be afraid. What are they going to do? They're going to kill me and send me to Jesus. That's, that's someone who understands the greatness of God. There is the way we're meant to live, I think. It's not just a cool saying. That's the real way we're supposed to live. And I don't know about you, but I've got work to do in my life before I live in that way. I, I understand this passage. I understand what it teaches about the greatness of God. I, I believe it. And in so many ways, it fills me in my heart. But it has got to work out more in my life. And if you're that way, then let's, let's go on this journey together. Let's be honest about the fact. I don't live as though life is Christ and death is gain. I don't live as though I recognize the greatness of God's glory and His power and His grace. But I want to. And let's seek the Lord until He gives us the grace we need to live in this way. Because the thing is, we can't muster it up. I mean, there's no switch in your mind or your heart that you can just turn and now be different. We even need God to fix that in us. That... God fixing it begins with us saying, it's not right. And I want it to be right, God. You do in me what needs to be done. And here am I. Send me.